Merry Christmas. I'm going to keep saying it because it's a Merry Christmas. Amen. How many of you had an opportunity to be here on Monday evening for Advent and Music? I got to tell you, I mean, we, from, from its humble beginnings a number of years ago, and I haven't, we haven't quite figured out when we started this, but honestly, it just continues to get better and better and better every year. And not just from the standpoint of musical competence and excellence, but from the standpoint of just sheer anointing about how all of it fits together. So those of you who are in the worship ministry here, thank you. It was really over the top. Thank you. Last week, by way of review, I spoke a message entitled Finding Jesus and really reduced it to about three things that we can do in order to find him. Now, we understand that in a very real sense, God finds us. Everybody got that? We were clear on that. And yet, after that initial moment where God reveals himself to us, then God flips the switch. He flips the roles to find out, will you continue to find me? And there's certain keys, there's certain tools by which that we have to develop in order to continue to do this. The first we looked at last week was persistence. Matthew 7, keep on asking, keep on knocking, etc. and so forth. And so many times we interpret this passage in the context of provision, and that's fine, but the reality is it's not just about provision, it's to keep on seeking what? Him. Him. The priority of being God Himself. Because the reality is, if we get that part right, the rest of it takes care of itself. What does Scripture say? Seek first the kingdom and righteousness, and what? All these other things, absolutely, which immediately establishes it in which the order God intends. And I hear so much emphasis, as do you in the contemporary church, about, you know, get hold of your promise and name it and claim it and blab it and grab it and declare it and decree it and get hold of whatever that thing is, when in reality, if we will seek after God, if we will find Him, all of these other things will neatly fall into place and fall into an alignment behind that search. Somebody say amen to that. Thank you very much. Then there's a posture and a priority of finding Him. Proverbs 8, I love those who love me and those who seek me find me. Jeremiah 29, not just hope and a promise, but it says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with what? All your heart. God is looking for something of absolute totality in us. And God can tell whether or not it's a little bit of peeking and seeking or whether or not we really are given over to the thing. Whether or not this is really, let me just tell you, husbands, you figured this out with your wife some time ago. She didn't want you, she didn't want your heart divided among all the old girlfriends and all the possible girlfriends before you were married. She wanted to know that your life was over without her. She could figure that out. Come on. I told my knuckleheaded son as he was dating the woman that is now his wife, praise God. I said, son, you just, you just, let me just tell you, you just got to make, she's got to know. You got to pursue her. I mean, it's got to be sanctified stalking. You got to, 
you, she's, she's got to know that you are, she is it that is filling that hole in your heart. All right. He got, must've gotten something out of that. All right. But it's the same thing with God. If we can figure out if somebody is withholding something from us relationally, certainly God can pretty much figuring out as well. And then the third is position, situation, and location. This is passage in Deuteronomy 4. I didn't have a chance to unpack this last week. But Moses was warning Israel specifically on the issue of obedience to the commands of God, specifically speaking about adultery. And he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 27. And this is what will happen. You mess up. The Lord will scatter you. This is Moses. Among the peoples, and only few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you'll worship man-made gods of wood and stone which cannot see or hear or smell. But watch this. Verse 29 of Deuteronomy 4. But if from there you seek the Lord your God... You will find him if you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul. Even from that vantage point, even from that location, that if you seek me with all your heart, God can be found. How many, how many of you feel like we live in exactly that place right now? I mean, scattered among the peoples, gods of Gods that cannot see or smell or eat or any, but I mean, the, all of this idolatry that's around us. We live very much this way today in our culture. Interesting. And why is that? God will be faithful for he is a merciful God and he will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your forefathers, which he confirmed to them by oath. And then finding Jesus in the midst of, realizing that God has always been there, regardless of whether or not we recognized him, which is exactly tonight where I want to go in the second part of this message entitled, Missing Jesus. To the extent that we can find him, how many of you know how easy it is to miss him as well? John chapter 1, verse 10 states the problem. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. What a passage of Scripture. Everything made through him, for him, reflecting his glory, including his crowning achievement, mankind. And yet, showed up, they missed him. When I was growing up, grocery stores were about the size of a contemporary Sheets gas station. Now, many of you might not remember this. How many of you have been, into, been in an Aldi? An Aldi, all right, or a Lidl, all right, or something like that. And you go in there, and besides the fact that none of the brands are there that you are familiar with, something's just wrong, all right? Now, it's cheap, okay, I'll, I'll give it that, all right? Even the quarter for the cart, the whole thing, all right? So that's, that's pretty cool. And, but you go in the store, and you can get your arms around it, 
You can see from that wall to that wall and from the front door to the back door. When I was a kid, this was the size of a big grocery store. You've heard me pontificate about chickens. That back in the day when you would go to the, to the back of the store where the meat counter was, your choice of chickens was very simple. A whole chicken or chicken that the butcher had already cut up. But that was it. And the difference in the cut up chicken and the whole chicken was about two cents a pound. So your dad taught you how to cut up a chicken as a young boy. Because that's two cents a pound, son. But now you go to the grocery store and there's 50 feet of chicken parts. Parts of a chicken I did not even know existed until the last couple of years. I did not know a chicken had a tenderloin, for instance. I mean, they figured out now how to take an 89-cent-a-pound chicken and, and squeeze out five or six bucks a pound for the same meat. Very impressive. And that's not even enough. Now you don't just have chickens. Now you've got chickens that died with a smile on their face. Chickens that were free range, chickens that were Buddhist, chickens that were, you know, that, that you, you understand what I'm saying. My wife and I called them happy chickens. My wife will send me to the grocery store and you be sure you get a happy chicken, which means the expensive organic version of that chicken. All right. They lived its entire life in ease and eating all organic food with a smile on its face who enjoyed life and just had one bad day. <laughs> but if you've ever been to a grocery store and then they move your stuff, I mean, come on, you know where the Oreos are. I mean, you go down aisle number six and they're, they're on the right-hand side, and, and, but then somebody gets smart. The big shot's... At the, Aldi, at the Aldi factory or whatever, they, they decide, let's rearrange the store. And they put the Oreos in the wrong place. And if that's not bad enough, then they start messing around with the packaging. Have you ever had an item that you've purchased for years and they change the package and you can't find it anymore? Because you begin to realize it's not just what's on the inside, but it's been the location and how it looks that has helped you find it. And then they start messing around with you like that. And if that's not enough, then the, the, the big shots at the Oreo factory, they can't leave well enough alone. It used just to be a regular Oreo. Now you got the double stuff Oreo. And now you got the fat boy Oreo, which is the skinny ones. You know what I'm talking about? This barely got any white on the inside. And now if that's not bad enough, I read this afternoon that there are three new flavors. You ready for these? Pina Colada Oreos, Cherry Cola Oreos, and Kettle Corn Oreos. Yeah. Could I submit to you that heaven did not ordain this? This came from the nether regions because this is not what God intended. Oreos are reflective of the Trinity. They're three parts. 
But you go into a store and you think things are going to be familiar, and all of a sudden now, things are not where they're supposed to be. Things don't look the way that they used to look. And so you come home empty-handed, and your wife says, Did you get No, I couldn't find it. I missed it. And you would think that Jesus would have been easy to find. But you see, he didn't show up in a way that many folk thought that he would. He was in the wrong place. He didn't look right. He didn't come in the right package, so to speak. The religious community, the very folks that should have recognized a Messiah, for the most part, missed him. Josephus, the first century historian, Beget, you know, highlights the difference of three primary groups of Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Three groups that all had very different worship patterns and different understanding of the interpretation of Scripture, how a Messiah was going to show up. The New Testament speaks, of course, of Pharisees and Sadducees, does not specifically mention the Essenes. Pharisees, of course, they're the the ones that Jesus spoke to the the most often. These guys love teaching. They were the, quote, separated ones. And they would have loved the preaching about the kingdom. They had no problem. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. But then you had another group. You had the Tea Party Jews. These were the Sadducees. This was another group. Then these, these were the ones that were a little bit more elite, for lack of a better word. And these guys didn't really get along that well with the Pharisees. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Their understanding of how a Messiah, they, they didn't even believe that a Messiah was going to show up. And then you've got the Essenes. The Essenes are the ones that are most closely attributed to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947. They believed that a Messiah was going to show up in two parts. They were looking, if you wish, not only for... They were looking for a military version, they were looking for a religious version. So among the three primary groups of those in the religious community, the Jews... There were these conflicting ideas of the interpretation of Messianic scriptures and then their own oral traditions all mixed in. So when he finally shows up, it's just like, this ain't right. This this, this, this is just not quite right. And we look at these groups and we look at their radicalism, the division among themselves. We can say, oh, they were so ignorant. But we don't have to look real far to look at the church itself. Look at the schisms and the isms and the lines that have been drawn, whether it was the Roman church and then the Greek church coming off of that and then this little, this little weird, you know, rebellious offspring about 500 years ago led by a couple of guys named Calvin and Luther that, that spawned this thing called Protestantism. And now we look at all of the schisms and the divisions and the splinters in Protestantism. And we've got all of these historical dominations. And now we've got this group of Pentecostals and some folk that believe this and how you get the baptism. And so it goes on and on and on and on. So this is not just history. This is history that we are currently living. 
And in that, there is this missing Jesus right at the essence of it. Because we can get so focused on, well, certainly this is how God has to look. This Certainly this is how God intends Scripture to be interpreted. Certainly this is what Jesus would, WWJD? Certainly if Jesus was here, he would sing this worship song. He would like it as much as we do. Hmm. Missing Jesus. But then beyond just the confusion of the religious community, be it Jew or Gentile, then we move on to those who were acquainted with him. Matthew, the 13th chapter. Jesus had finished speaking these parables. Folk were looking around and said, where, where did this guy get all this stuff from? I mean, you know, he's, he's, he's reading stuff. I mean, this is... I don't get it. Where did this man get this wisdom and these powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? In the very next sentence, and they took offense with him. I mean, rather at marveling at asking the right questions, who really is this guy? Other than just trying to, to work the genealogy, they took offense with him. Those acquainted with him. Then there were those closest to him. The story is told, Luke 2, after we move beyond the, the Christmas story, every year Jesus' parents would take him to the temple for the feast of the Passover. You remember this story, 12 years old, he's hanging out, asking questions. They travel on for a while and realize, where Jay? Where, hey, anybody seen Jay? They have to go all the way back to find him. And after three days, it says they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Twelve years old. What were you doing when you were twelve? When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And he says, why have you been looking? What did he say? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But this says they did not understand what he was saying to them. Mary at the tomb. A couple of angels were there. They said, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away. I don't, I don't know where they put him. And at this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Certainly, this, can't, this, this guy standing here is not him. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. There's a stretch. She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. Jesus then said to her, what? Mary. Mary. All of a sudden, she heard something. Now, she, she missed it looking, but she heard something in the inflection of his voice, in the affection 
that he had for her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out, Teacher. The disciples, some disciples on the road to Emmaus. Luke chapter 24. Two of them going to a village and all of a sudden Jesus joins them. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Luke 24, Jesus himself came up, walked with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Interesting. What are you guys talking about? Haven't you heard what's been going on? Haven't you heard about everything going on in Jerusalem? By Jesus of Nazareth, he, he, he was a prophet. And then Jesus begins to speak to them. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village, they said, stay with us. It's nearly evening, day's over. So they went in to stay with him. It says, when he was at the table, I want you to watch something important here. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened. Then, say then. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared. And they said, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So they got up, of course, found, they, they left immediately, found the 11. It's true, God's risen, the Lord's risen. And the, two, the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. It's a fascinating thing to me that even in the exposition and the revelation of scriptures that Jesus was giving these two disciples all day long on that journey, it wasn't until they sat down at that table and Jesus began to break bread that their eyes were open. It was in that moment they recognized who he was. You know, we come to the Eucharist, the communion, once a month. It's first Sunday is what we do. We'll get our little cups, get our little wafer. And most of the time we come to this table and yes, it's, it's about God, but for the most part, it's about us. It's about forgiveness of sins. It's the fact that the, the blood has cleansed us. And that's all correct. It's all right. But do you realize that it's the miracle of the Eucharist where revelation is supposed to come to us? Every time that we break this bread, when we come together at that table, somehow there should be an ongoing revelation of who God is. Not just the fact that his body was broken and his blood was shed so you and I could be right and get right. But somehow, just like these disciples, in that moment when bread was broken, when that bread is broken for you and I, revelation is supposed to come. And I wonder, as I wonder, I wonder if somehow we've made the experience of the table so liturgical and so it's what we do that we've missed the supernatural element of revelation, of recognizing who God is. Hmm, just a question. But when he doesn't appear as expected, where expected, how expected, 
What do we do? Why do, why do we miss him? And let me give you four problems in closing tonight. The first one is deception. There's a spiritual problem in missing Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, says that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light. Here we go. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. There's a passage of scripture one should go get lost in for about a year right there. But we find out that it's not just an issue of rebellion. It's not just an issue of the sin nature and the fallenness of the world, but there is a demonic assignment. Listen to me. The God of this age has blinded the mind of unbelievers so that they cannot do what? See the light of the gospel of Christ. What is this entire season about? It's about a light. It's about the star. It is about the light that is now coming to the world. And I appreciate all the different evangelistic methods that we come up with. Every few years, there's a new latest greatest. But let me just tell you, ladies and gentlemen, you are never going to argue somebody into the kingdom. You are never going to apologetically just talk somebody out of deception because deception is not a cognitive problem. Deception is a spiritual problem that can only be dealt with with a spiritual solution. I mean, and you can have it down, man. You can God test somebody and do it. It's a great tool. But when it's all said and done, you've got to understand you are dealing with a spiritual problem of deception. That's keeping people from being able to see. And if they can't see, they certainly can't respond. Wow. Paul's commission. Fame for missing Jesus is a great antagonist of the, of the gospel. Acts 26. I said, who are you, Lord? Paul relating his story here. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Get up, stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant, as a witness of what you've seen. I'll rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to do what? Does it say? Open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. Isaiah chapter 9, which we quote over and over this time of the year, the people walking in Great darkness have seen a what? A great light. We miss Jesus many times because of deception. But then we miss Jesus many times, number two, because of perception. The construct of who we want him to be. And I won't take long that you can go back and listen to a message I spoke in November called Plastic Jesus about the construct of God of, that we, 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 we make of our imagination and our expectations. We have this perception. 
Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes. Different people, different groups had an idea. This is how God has to show up. It's why many times people that are in certain denominations, when God shows up in a way that doesn't meet their tradition. Uh-oh. Oh, we don't do that here. We, 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 uh, that, that can't be God because we don't do that here. Oh, really? Hmm. Perception. God, over and over, C.S. Lewis says, destroying this notion that we've built in our mind of who he is. The great iconoclast, destroying the ideal, the idea, or the idol of who this other God is that we've made him. We've missed God because of communication problems. Job 33 says, God does speak now one way, now another, though man may not do what? Perceive it. We often miss him because we don't recognize his voice when he's talking. Because, saints, if you cannot hear, you cannot obey. And if you can't obey, you can't follow. Consequently, if you cannot hear and recognize his voice, you can never be pastored and you can never be pastured or fully receive his paternity. We have to be able to recognize his voice. And it's different. John chapter 10 explains how this works. The watchman opens the gate for him. The sheep listen to his voice. Here's your identifiers, who you are. He calls his own sheep by name. He leads them out. And when he's brought all, brought out all his own, he goes on ahead and his sheep follow him. Why? Because they're disciplined? Because they're reading their Bible? Because they go to church on Wednesdays and Sundays? No. What does it say here? It says they follow him because they know his voice. They know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they don't recognize a stranger's voice. But it's this failure to recognize the voice whereby which we often get overwhelmed and confused with all of the other voices. Your child uniquely can discern your voice. That child's been learning that voice since in utero. A child is born and instinctively turns toward the voice that he or she has been hearing his entire life up to that moment and turns where? Toward not the doctor, not the nurse, not anybody else in that room, but turns to what? The voice of the mother. Because that's the recognizable voice. That is what God is looking for in you and in me. And so many times you hear people say, oh, I just can't hear God's voice. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Are there skills involved? Yes. But more than skill, there is the will 
of saying, you know what? I'm going to learn to discern the voice of God. I'm going to be still. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to shut up. And I'm not going to move until I know I've heard the voice of the Lord. Oh, my goodness. Communication is one reason we often miss him. We think we've heard something. We get a good idea, something in the construct of our imagination, something that we've read from somewhere else that seems like a really good idea or somebody else is doing, and we begin to run off in that direction, and we hope that somehow God's going to chase us down and bless us in our journey. Communication, and then lastly, identification. You know, there's a lot of things pretending to be God's. And you know why? Because we've allowed them into those places of worship that are reserved for only the one true God. You know, it's amazing as you begin to look through the Old Testament over and over and over again. It's almost thematic about idolatry, about not turning to other gods. God knew right from the very beginning, even as he was handing out Here are 10 things to do that if you'll do these things, life will go well for you. Thou shalt have what? No other gods. Why why, why was that primary? Because God is some kind of narcissist and he's insecure? No. Because he realized how a man's heart is so easily turned and how easy it is to put things on altars and on pedestals that somehow will give us something back. Oh, my goodness. I don't know about you, but I have to continually guard my heart against idols. And I'm not talking about carved things out of wood and stone. I'm talking about really good things for the most part. You can make an idol out of your children. You can make an idol out of a leader. You can make an idol out of something that, whereby which you derive pleasure and comfort from and you begin to give your attention and your affection to those things. Oh, my goodness. Identification. And God is continuing to confirm his identity to you and to I, to, to you and me. I've been in the throes of OSX and iOS. And now they've got these 17-part authentications. You're just trying to do something, and you got this number happening over here, and you got to put this number over here. Next thing you know, your phone is ringing, and they want you to... And it's like, ah! I mean, there's some safeguards in what they call two-part authentication. But can I submit to you that there are at least two ways that God authenticates his identity. The first is internally. Galatians chapter 4. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out what? Abba, Father. There's an internal authentication, but then there's an external authentications as well. Romans 1, that what may be known about God is plain based on what? What he has made. Acts 17 that he has given proof of this to all men by raising Jesus from the dead. John 10, don't believe me unless I do what my father does, but if I do it, even though you don't believe me, believe the miracles 
that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. God is continually authenticating himself, identifying himself internally in you and in me. We love this idea of sons, but the real thing about sonship is first identifying who daddy is, Abba, Father. The rights of sons, yes, all that, that's good, it's great, it's biblical. But the real issue of sonship is identifying who daddy is. I tell you, I see too many Christians that got daddy issues. My wife and I have the privilege of talking to ministry ministers and ministry couples literally all over the world. We were talking to a couple in another nation yesterday for an hour and a half. And it's exactly, I mean, these are, these are leaders, good, good man and woman, daddy issues, yet still. Never really, they still don't really identify who their daddy really is. And so as a result, many times they're looking for all of these other earthly daddies to affirm them. And as a result, they are continually disappointed because they don't get the affection and the affirmation from those earthly daddies. Let me just tell you, God is looking for that identification to make himself known to you like never before. Jared Green busted my chops on Sunday. He said, Pastor Jim says, now, what did I say? He says, I think he's old and he forgot. So let me rephrase the question for Jared Green. Let me restate what I said. Even as much as we can find Jesus, many times we miss him. And I might say, if there's such a thing as being in good company, we're in good company. Well-meaning people, all the way from Jesus' family to his very disciples, they often missed him. It's often a problem of deception. Where the enemy has to be set aside and moved away so that the light that is in this gospel can be made known. There's the perception of who we want God to be that we've created in our own minds. There are problems of communication. That God is indeed speaking to us. The shepherd has a unique voice that is distinct above and beyond any other voice in our life. And then there's identification. Many times we've identified with so many other things that we unknowingly have placed in a position of deity. Maybe not capital D, but at least a small d. And God is a jealous God, wanting us to take everything off of every throne that we've created and put it on. So that there's a very clear identification both internally by the Holy Spirit, continuing to call us sons and daughters, that we cry out, Abba, Father, and then externally, God making himself known to us over and over and over again. And I just want to encourage us, even as we are in the throes of the season, don't miss him. Don't miss him.
Let's pray.